Did you enjoy the music? Amen. I sure did. I sang in a choir once. <laughs> I was the captain of the Catholic basketball team. I always was, I grew quickly as a teenager and uh, always was shooting jump shots from the left-hand side of the court. And uh, as captain of the Catholic basketball team, the nun came to me one day, superior nun, Mother Superior. Now, when you're going to a Catholic school and Mother Superior comes to you, you don't uh, refuse what Mother Superior asks you to do. And she said, Mark, we need you for height in the back of the choir. <laughs> now, most choirs need voices, but they needed height in the back of the choir. And she said, we think it would be a very positive thing for the captain of the Catholic basketball team to be seen at mass in the choir singing but I can't put you on the choir until you try out. So you have to try out for the choir because it wouldn't look good for me to put you on just because you were the captain of the basketball team. So she said, I want you to come out on such and such a day for the tryout for this choir, which I did. At the end of the tryout, she got me aside and she said, now Mark, you have made the choir, congratulations. But when you sing for mass, please just move your mouth so you don't spoil the rest. <laughs> so I sang, stood in the back of the choir and mouthed the words the first time, and that was the last time I ever went to choir. So <laughs> I appreciate very, very much good music. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we can share today about how great and mighty you are. And I just pray that during this period that you'd, we'd catch a vision not of ourselves, but of you. We'd catch a vision of the bigness, the greatness of God. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Have you ever read a book that profoundly changed your life and you really believed that God gave you that book at that time? I had just become a Seventh-day Adventist. I was 18 years old. And I read a book that profoundly influenced me. It was a book by J.B. Phillips, you may have read the Phillips translation of the Bible, but J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in that book, he talks about why young people often reject the concept of God. And one of the reasons they do is because young people can spot a phony a mile away. Right. And what young people really want is not a form of religion, not a pretense of religion, but they want to see a God that's big, a God that's mighty, a God that can do something that is transforming. And in that book, he talks about different views of God. He said some people have a view of God as the resident policeman. That's one concept of God. He's the resident policeman, that he's sitting up in heaven with his policeman hat on, with his blue, blue uniform and badge, almost like a traffic cop that has his radar on the interstate ready to get you if you go beyond the speed limit of 50 miles an hour. So some people have the idea of God as the traffic cop. He's the resident policeman. He's looking down there and saying, ah, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. And that kind of God only produces a guilt, but certainly no power. And so J.B. Phillips develops that in one chapter. Another chapter, he talks about God as the, uh, as the cosmic Santa Claus. Some people view God as, oh, Lord, I really want that new Ford Taurus, and you are the God who is the cosmic Santa Claus. Give me that which I desire. But that God, again, is too small. Some people picture God as the benevolent grandfather. 
He's the kind of God that um, always puts his arm around and said, it's going to be okay. I know you did. It's going to be okay. And Phillips points out that any one of those views of God is far too small. That God is the all-powerful, the mighty creator. He is the loving redeemer. He is the coming king. He is the one who is far bigger than our ambitions or dreams. I want to talk to you this afternoon about a God that's bigger than you can possibly imagine, about a God that's greater than you can possibly ever conceive, and about a God that has an incredible plan for your life that's beyond your wildest dreams. Now, there are two texts that I want to read, and then I want to illustrate how fantastic this God is. The first passage of Scripture is in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, and we're going to pick up the theme in Isaiah 9, verse 6, of who this God is. Hosea 9, 6 is a prophecy in the Old Testament about Christ as Messiah. And it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Now, notice what kind of God he is in verse 6. What's he called in verse 6? What kind of God? Mighty God. What a mighty God we serve. The Africans have a song, and I love to hear them sing it. It goes on and on again. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. God is mighty. And in the final analysis, none of the powers of hell can stand before him. I'm going to share with you some stories this afternoon. They're incredible. But they're a tribute to this mighty God, this God that is bigger than all the powers of hell, this God that is greater than all the totalitarian forces of evil, this God who is a, what kind of God is he? A mighty God. This God who is mightier than any foe that will ever stand against you. Second passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. God has given me the opportunity for the last 40 years to see how mighty he is. For the last 25 years, I've been traveling the world, having the opportunity to share his love and grace. And I've seen this mightiness of God Ephesians 1 and verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power? Now, this is no small God. This is no God that is some God in a box that can do nothing. Here, Paul says, I've seen the exceeding greatness of his power. Do you want power in your life? God says he has exceeding great power. Do you want to see God do something through you in the high school that you go to? At the place where you work, there is exceeding greatness of his power. He is a God who's a God of no limits. There's no limit with this God. When you give yourself to him, as Ellen White so aptly puts it, there is no limit to the what? 
usefulness of the one who puts self aside and commits themselves wholly and totally to God. The reason we don't see more working of the mighty power of God is because of the fact that there has been that failure at times to make a full surrender to God. If you make a full surrender to God, he's going to do something amazing through you. You're going to see how mighty he is. As we make a full surrender to God, we see the the greatness of his power. Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Do you believe? Do you be, I know you do. You believe, right? And what are you going to see if you believe? What does the text say? The exceeding greatness of what? His power to those that believe. We go on. According to the working of his mighty what? Power. He's a mighty God and he has mighty power. When communism fell in 1989, as the result of Mikhail Gorbachev's emphasis on Perestroika and Glosnost. Perestroika is a word in Russian that means restructuring, and Glosnost means openness. And so Gorbachev saw that the former Soviet Union was isolated, and he wanted to restructure and have a period of, of openness in that society. When that openness occurred, the former Soviet Union opened for the preaching of the gospel. And we were invited, I had been working since 85 in communist countries, from 85 to 90 working in those communist countries, I was largely helping to negotiate religious freedom and opportunities for Seventh-day Adventist old evangelistic meetings. And so I was able to understand at least somewhat about the communist mind. 1989, when Russia opened and communism fell, we were invited to come to the former Soviet Union, in Moscow particularly. At that time, we had one Seventh-day Adventist church in Moscow. That church had existed for probably 70 years. Our religious liberty was was very limited. But now, the doors of religious freedom opened. And we went and held an evangelistic meeting in an auditorium, a university auditorium called Pohana University. When I got there, the Russian leadership, the Adventist leadership was concerned. And they said, Pastor Mark, we're going to give you a bodyguard. Now, I'm not concerned about bodyguards because the Bible says that uh, I've got a thousand angels times 10,000 that watch over me, but occasionally I will yield to what others think. And so they said, we want to assign you a bodyguard. So one day I was walking with my bodyguard, Boris, and he wasn't a huge fellow at all. He was probably 5'11", maybe 5'10". He was pretty muscular and fairly fit. And so we were walking down a hallway in a hotel one day, and I said, I kind of pushed him a little bit. He was in his early 20s. And I said, hey, Boris, if somebody attacked me, what would you do? He said, I'll show you what I could have done. And he jumped, and he jumped and did a karate kick. And literally, he was this level, and he put footprints on the wall above my head. (laughs) And I kind of went, gulp. And I said, I need to know a little bit about your background. (laughs) Tell me who you are. And he smiled and he said, Mark, I wouldn't do that today, but I was just teasing you a little bit. He said, I'd get my arm around them and talk to them. I said, but who are you? He said, I'll tell you. My uncle guarded Stalin. You know, Stalin, we talk about Hitler as being evil. You know, Hitler killed, killed six million Jews. Stalin killed 20 to 40 million Russians. When the Russian metro was being built under Moscow, 
and it's one of the nicest metros in the world. It was fantastic. It had beautiful marble statues and columns and artwork, uh, shops. It was the most uh, advanced metro in the world. Stalin wanted the metro built, so he called in the foreman and he put his finger on a date and he said, I want the metro finished by that date. He said, Comrade Stalin, the manager said, Comrade Stalin, that's going to take 20,000 men. He said, I don't care. I'll give you 20,000. He said, we're going to have to work three shifts day and night. I don't care. It's going to cost millions of rubles. I don't care. Comrade Stalin, we're going to lose at least 10,000 people. They're going to die if we push them because there's going to be a lot of cave-ins. We can't work to safety. I don't care if you lose 10,000 people building that metro and they die. If they don't build it, you may die. Build that metro. And they accomplished the metro, and I think they lost 5,000, 10,000 people. And Stalin didn't care. Stalin was ruthless. Anybody around him that got close to him, that he thought or perceived may be a threat to his authority, he killed him. This young man that was my bodyguard, his uncle guarded Stalin. He wanted all of his life to be a KGB agent and a spy against the West. I come from the West. <laughs> he wanted to be a spy against the West. That was his dream. Now, what, happens, what happened in the former Soviet Union was they would choose the most intelligent and the brightest, take them aside, and train them to be KGB agents. So I sat down with Boris, and I said, Boris, tell me about the classes you took. He said, well, I took psychological manipulation. I can walk into any room and within five minutes find out in that group of 75 or 100 people, this man's a leader. This woman is the leader. If I can manipulate the minds of the leaders, I can take the whole group and control them. So I understand mind control. I understand manipulation. Secondly, I took uh, karate. I know where to hit and how to hit instantly. Thirdly, I took explosives to blow up bridges. Fourthly, I took a class in knives and guns. We talked about his background. I said, where, what were the plans for your life? He said, the plans of my life is I was going to be a spy in Italy. And I was going to be dropped into Italy and spy in Italy. So I had to learn Italian. I was going to be a Russian businessman in Italy spying for the Russian government. I said, what changed all that? He said, one night I was going to KGB school and I was doing guard duty. And I was, it had rained that night and I was up in a guard tower. And when I stepped to come down off the guard tower, I stepped on the first step, and I began to tumble. And I fell, and I broke my back. I ended up in a KGB hospital, special hospital. While I was in the hospital, I was watching television. And this was the time at Tbilisi in Georgia, not Georgia in the United States, but Tbilisi. This was the time in Tbilisi in Georgia that the Georgian Russian Republic was rebelling against Moscow. So Moscow sent in KGB agents who were in Boris's class to infiltrate the crowd to incite riots against the government. Remember I told you they knew psychological manipulation? So they were to go into the crowd, incite riots against 
the Georgian government to bring it down. So Russia didn't have to send all its troops in, but they wanted to cause revolution within, and that's the function of the KGB. And so he said, I was watching TV with my broken back, looking at the crowds on television and the Russian news reports. I saw my own classmates inciting riots. And I, and I said to myself, is this the way you want to spend the rest of your life? In deceit, in lying, in cheating? Is this the way you want to spend the rest of your life? And he said, I laid there on my bed thinking, this is not the life I want. And he said, as I lay on my bed day after day saying, what's the purpose of my life? What's, what can I find to do in life that's worthwhile beside building the Soviet empire? Scores of young people gave their lives to build the Soviet empire because they believed in the ideology of communism. Young people want to give their life to something's big and grand. And the greatest thing you can give your life to is the proclamation of the gospel. Amen. The greatest thing, the biggest cause on earth is this gospel of the kingdom going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. There is no greater cause than that. Boris was lying on his bed, and he said, I thought of somebody called Jesus. He said, I had heard the name of Jesus one time in my life. One time I had heard the name of Jesus, and it came in my head. And he said, I had heard that this Jesus had given a mountain sermon. He didn't know the Sermon on the Mount. He thought it was mountain sermon, sermon on the Mount. But he said, I thought if I only, if there was only, if I could only get a copy of this mountain sermon, because somebody said it said something about how to have meaning in life, like the peacemakers, and I want to be a peacemaker. I don't think I want to do this riot and revolution business. So he thought, I know what. I will write to the Orthodox priest in Russia maybe in the archives of the Orthodox Church, there is one of these copies of the Mountain Sermon. You think one of those might be still around? So he wrote to the Orthodox priest. Now, in Russia, in, an, in those days, in an attempt to control all religions, they put all the religious mailboxes in the post office next to one another. And when the letter came to the Russian Orthodox priest, the postmaster put it in the Adventist pastor's mailbox by mistake. <laughs> you think it was mistake? What do you think? No. The Holy Spirit leads in miraculous ways, doesn't he? The letter came. The, the, the Adventist pastor read the letter. As he read the letter, he went and visited Boris in the KGB hospital. And Boris had all the typical arguments against the Bible. You know, I, I want to learn a little bit about this Jesus, but look, the Bible can't be true. The Orthodox, the Adventist pastor opened the Bible, and he said, let me share with you a prophecy in Daniel. Now, Boris had studied Babylon. He had studied Medo-Persia. He had studied Greece and Rome, and his mouth was open. He said, what university did you go to? In those days, the Adventist pastors couldn't go to any university. The Adventist pastor talked about the prophecies of Daniel. Boris was convicted, and he said, when I get out of the hospital, I need to see you. Now, you don't go to the KGB after they trained you and said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I think I'll change professions. <laughs> but they said to him, because you broke your back 
And because you may have a physical infirmity that would be a liability for some of the tasks, we're so sorry to disappoint you, but you're not going to qualify for the top KGB office and we'll release you. God was moving powerfully. Boris left. The Adventist pastor studied with him. He became a Seventh-day Adventist. He said to me, Mark, I know those things, but I'm here not to use any force. I'm here to just guide you around by my knowledge, people that may want to harm you. I was with him for three years. At the end of three years, that young man made a decision to become, because we kept going back and forth to Moscow for three years, he made a decision, we talked, to become an Adventist pastor. I gave him my graphics, and he began preaching the Adventist message in his early 20s as a powerful evangelist. He held five meetings, 10 meetings, 20 meetings, evangelistic meetings. Today, he is a conference president in Russia, a former KGB agent. We serve a what kind of God? What kind of God is he? He is a mighty God. He is a mighty God. We began walking around the Kremlin. Now, the Kremlin is an incredible piece of property. Over 200 major buildings in the Kremlin. And as you walk around the Kremlin, it's probably a mile and a half around. When we first were going to, looking at the Kremlin, we began to pray, Lord, if you could give us the Kremlin for an evangelistic meeting in the center of the former Soviet Union, it will have a message that will go to all of the republics of the former Soviet Union and touch over 200 million people. We get to pray, God, please give us the Kremlin. Lord, I want to hold an evangelistic meeting in the Kremlin. This is where Khrushchev spoke and Andropov spoke. This is where the great Soviet leaders espoused atheism. Lord, we want to hold a meeting in the Kremlin. God opened the door to the Kremlin. They agreed that we'd have an evangelistic meeting there. And uh, at first they said, you cannot carry in a Bible. We began to pray, Lord, open the door. We want to give out Bibles. We want to give out 20,000 Bibles to the people that come. Pretty soon they said, okay, Mr. Finley, you cannot bring any of your Bibles in. If you want to bring those Bibles in, the Russian army has to carry the boxes. I said, praise the Lord. We'll let the Russian army carry the boxes any day. (laughs) Saves our deacons' backs. Russian army trucks picked up 20,000 Bibles and delivered them to the Kremlin. What kind of God do we serve? What kind of God is he? One day I was sitting in a restaurant in Moscow. At that time, the general conference president was Elder Neil Wilson. He came to me and looked at me with a very concerned look on his face. And he said, Pastor Mark, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? It was March 16, 1992. He said, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, didn't you read the headlines of the paper today? I said, no. He said, the Russian Communist Party. Now, this is what year is it? 1992. When did communism fall? 89. So he said, the Russian Communist Party is going to have a large rally in Red Square. They want to bring the nation back to communism. You are having your evangelistic meeting in the Kremlin. This is where the Communist Party always meets. The Yeltsin government, and you remember the Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin stood against communism. He walked out and put his hands up in front of the tank. The Yeltsin government that stands for democracy doesn't want them in the Kremlin. They are going to demonstrate, and the paper today, the headline says, 
Communist Party wants to hold their annual convention where they always have held it for the last 40 years, but because American evangelist Mark Finley is in there, they can't. <laughs> That's not good. I said, no, it's not. Because I knew that in my first meeting, they marched around the Kremlin holding placards with my picture in the placard. I felt good about that. I said, those people are marching, hold on my picture. Then one of the Russian pastors said, did you see what's around the picture? I said, what's that? They said, all black felt. I said, what does that mean? It means death to the one inside the picture. I wasn't so happy then. But God is, what kind of God is he? A mighty God. So I was concerned, you know. And Pastor Wilson said, Mark, I don't know what we're going to do. There could be 30,000 people in Red Square. How are we going to get all those 10, 15,000 people, 13,000 actually, they're attending your meetings. How are we going to get them through Red Square? Because when these communists, former communists, see them coming through, there could be riot and revolution. He said, we maybe should cancel the meeting. I said, let me go to, let me go to uh, the Kremlin and talk to the, the chief Russian general, the chief Russian general. Now, I had some experiences with the Russian military before. During my first evangelistic meeting in the Kremlin, at the end of the meeting, the general that led the Afghan invasion for the Russian army came to me. He gave me a Russian bear hug, and I thought he cracked my back. <laughs> and he said to me, I was here tonight in your meeting with a number of Russian army officers and intellectuals from Russia. We believe that the only hope for our society is a moral revolution. And we want you to know that we concur with what you said tonight. Amen. So it was March 16, 1992, and now I was going to find out what we were going to do about the meeting that evening because the Communist Party was going to, going to um, meet in, the, uh, in Red Square. When I went to the Kremlin, I went up and made an appointment with a top Russian official. And I told him the problem. I said, sir, I really need your counsel because I don't know what to do. We understand that there's going to be 30,000 people, former communists, in Red Square. And we're going to bring our people through Red Square. And I don't want there to be any riot, revolution, or major problem. Should we cancel the meeting? And he looked at me and he said, Dr. Finley, whatever you do, don't cancel that meeting. If you do, the Kremlin will be open. The communists are going to want to come back in it. Now, you know, I don't know if this was an experience like Daniel that changed the history of Babylon. I don't know if this was an experience like Joseph that changed the history of Egypt. But this experience, which I've rarely told, I haven't told it a great deal, but some, but I've thought of it since then. What if we didn't have the meeting? What if the communists would have pressed their way and gotten back into the Kremlin? Could Russia have gone back in that direction? Who knows? I don't know the answer to that question. But I know that this general told me, he said, I will guarantee the security of your people. What we're going to do is we're going to get 10,000 Russian troops. We're going to put them in the streets of Moscow. They're going to seal off the area. You tell your people to come through this certain gate in Moscow, and we will keep the protesters against them. But they said, we're incredibly concerned about your safety. So this is what's going to happen. That rally is going to take place at 3 or 4 in the afternoon. Your meeting's at 5 o'clock. You cannot risk personally about being on the streets during that time. We're going to send a car to the hotel. When the, hotel pick, when the car comes, you lay down on the, seat, the back seat of the car. We're going to take you inside the Kremlin, and you're going to be in the Kremlin all day. 
a car came to the hotel, and already there were protesters against outside of my hotel. They were screaming and yelling, you know, American imperialism and American go home and so forth and so on. I laid down on the back of the car, and it took me to the Kremlin. When I came to the Kremlin that day, and, you know, it's one of those days in your life that's etched on your brain. It's one of those days that you don't forget. I came to the Kremlin that day, and I climbed up on the walls. I was in the Kremlin all day from about 10 in the morning, and I climbed up on the walls of the Kremlin inside looking out, and I saw hundreds and hundreds of people gathering in the streets for this rally, communists. And I looked down to the right, and I must have seen with my eyes 50 or 100 army trucks. And I saw Russian soldiers seal off the area so that Seventh-day Adventists and seekers and guests could come to an evangelistic meeting. And my mind went back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I thought of Mikhail Kulikov, who was arrested by Russian soldiers and sent to a dark, cold prison in Siberia. I thought of the hundreds of Adventist pastors who died in prison. And I thought, what a miracle it is. What a mighty God we serve. Just years ago, all the Adventist pastors, most of them were in prison. We had 38 Adventist pastors in the Ukraine and 34 were in prison. But now the Russian army is not putting Adventist pastors in prison. Now they are holding back so that the communists can't get to those prospective seekers so people can come and hear the word of God. We serve a what? Mighty God. That's what he is. And he's mighty in your life too. Let me leave Russia for a moment. I want to take you to just a few countries and expand your mind. As you commit yourself to Christ, and you're committed young people, you've committed yourself to Jesus, he's a mighty God. You're going to see the greatness of his power in your life. Maybe not in the exact same ways that I have seen it, but you will see it in a Bible study you give. You'll see it in a piece of literature you give out. You'll see it in an evangelistic meeting you get involved in. God has something bigger for you and better for you than simply going out and working in some factory or working at McDonald's or working at some nurse or working as a doctor and making money and having some palatial of some big house someplace. God has purpose and meaning in your life. He wants to work through you in incredible ways whatever he leads you to do, whether it's a doctor, nurse, computer engineer, whether it is a teacher, a lawyer, whatever that is, your main work is to use that platform to lead people to Jesus. That's the meaning of life and the greatness of life. Let me take you from there to China. God's doing some incredibly amazing things in China today. We have approximately 400,000 Seventh-day Adventists in China. Recently, our world president, Dr. Jan Paulson, returned from China. And uh, as I sat talking to him about what God is doing in China, he told me this story. He said, in the northeast corner of China, there is a lady who is a pastor. She is a godly woman. She spends time praying and seeking God. She was preparing candidates for baptism. And she was waiting for them to be baptized until the district pastor came along who was going to baptize them. I said, Pastor Paulson, how many did she prepare for baptism? He said, 3,000. 3,000. And when the district pastor came along, she said, in her district, she has 20,000 members in her pastoral district. God is doing something in China. It's like the book of Acts all over again. 
3,000 were going to be baptized. The pastor went into the water at 8 o'clock in the morning and he baptized for three straight days. From 8 in the morning to 5 in the evening, they had some deacons come into the water. And Pastor Paulson asked this lady pastor, why is it that this is happening? She said, they see our zeal. They see how committed we are. Let me give you an example of the commitment of Chinese believers. One lady in Inner Mongolia in China had a small group studying the Bible, 15 people. And as she was studying with them, the KGB police, secret police, security police broke in. And they said, look, if you study next week with them, we're going to arrest you and your whole group. The next week, she had a Bible study with a smaller group of people. Now they began to break up so they'd study in little groups. As she was leaving that Bible study, the police showed up and they said, we're taking you to jail. They took her to jail. That night in jail, she knelt down and said, okay, Lord, I've got a year jail sentence. I'm going to make this jail my mission field. This jail is my mission field. If you have led me here for some reason I don't understand, this is my mission field. So she began reaching out to the prostitutes over here, and 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 it was a female prison, the robbers over here, and and the thieves over here, and she began sharing Jesus with them. She would sing hymns, and they would come to her prison cell, and soon she had five, and 15, and then 20, then 30, then 40, and pretty soon she had 50, and then 60, and then 70. And she was studying about Jesus and his love and his salvation and the Sabbath and the second coming. And soon she had a church in prison that was meeting. And the prison warden came to her and he said, we are commuting your sentence and sending you home. She said, you can't do that. She said, it is Chinese law that I have been sentenced for a year in prison. I only served six months and I've got to serve for a year. He said... No, you are going home. She said, no, I'm staying in prison. He said, look, we made the greatest mistake in putting you in prison. Before you had to go look for people. Now we gave you a whole prison full. If you stay here, this whole prison will be Seventh-day Adventist. Do you see why the church in China is growing? Because God is moving powerfully through people who are dedicated. What kind of God do we serve? He's a what kind of God? He's a mighty God, a mighty God. Let's go from there to Pakistan. (laughs) Pakistan's not easy. It's the second most challenging, second largest Muslim country in the world. Okay, what's the largest Muslim country in the world? You got it. Oh, man, I got thinkers here. Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Muslim. We're on our way to Indonesia to hold an evangelistic meeting three weeks from now. Somebody said, I understand two hotels were just blown up by a terrorist attack in Indonesia. They just were about three weeks ago, two hotels. They said, Pastor Phil, are you going to go? And I said, if I don't go, if I know God sends me someplace, if I don't go because there's trouble, I'm not going to go many places because there's about trouble in every place you go in the world. Now, if you're going as a tourist, don't go. If you're going on a joyride for excitement, don't go. If you're going because you want thrills, don't go. But if God puts in your heart a deep abiding conviction. So we are going to Indonesia shortly. Second largest Muslim country is Pakistan in the world. Now Pakistan is an amazing place. When I was in Pakistan holding evangelistic meetings, I was holding them in a Muslim auditorium. I had On that part of the world, all women sit on this side. 
So you look at the women, they look at you. Then you got the men sitting in the center, and they don't crack a smile, not a smile. I mean, they just sit there looking straight ahead. So in that audience, we had Muslims, we had Parsis, and we had uh, Hindus and some Christians. Now, the Parsis are interesting. They're descendants of Cyrus of Persia. You know that you're in a Parsi neighborhood if you see tall chimneys. You know why? Those are the burial grounds. What the Parsis do is when somebody dies, they have a chimney. It probably is about maybe 25 feet tall, and they lay the body on the top of the chimney, and it has a metal grate, and the birds come along and eat the flesh, and the bones drop through the grate, then they crush, somebody goes up and crushes the skeleton, and they drop it, and when the bones fill up the chimney, then they start another chimney. So those are the Parsis, very fascinating customs and people. While I was there, (laughs) while I was there, the vice president of Squibb Corporation, the vice president of Squibb Corporation, Squibb is a pharmaceutical country, company. Vice president of Squibb Corporation was, uh, there was an attempted kidnap. Uh, The Muslim militants dragged him out of a car and six guys with Uzi machine guns got around him. And they were pulling him in to kidnap him. And the guy was brilliant. He had a Rolex watch on. I don't have this advantage. But he had a Rolex. (laughs) Somebody got it. The rest miss it. I'm a poor preacher. So um, he had a Rolex watch on. And he looked at the guy he thought was the head of the kidnap group. And he pulled off his Rolex watch. And he said, you don't want me. You want this. And he gave the guy the Rolex watch. He turned around and got in his car and drove away. He was fortunate he didn't get, you know, gunned to death. Right after that happened, we we were during our our evangelistic meetings, the United States government sent out a letter, and they said, you need to report to the American embassy. So about 40 Americans went to the embassy, and I thought they're going to ship us home. I can't have my meetings. And the ambassador to Karachi, to to Pakistan, got up, and he said, "Um, tonight you think we're going to ship you home, but we're not. But we are going to bring you we're going to bring into this meeting the two top American interrogators on espionage. And they are going to talk to you about two things. One, how not to get kidnapped. And second, how to live if you get kidnapped. They had just been debriefing American hostages. And they brought them in. And for two hours, the top espionage people in America shared with us how not to get kidnapped. Now, I'm not going to give you that lecture. You can talk to me about that after. And how to survive if you get kidnapped. I mean, it was fascinating. So that was the kind of atmosphere we were functioning in. I was pretty happy, though, because the auditorium assigned two Muslim bodyguards. One stood on the right, and he was kind of a huge guy, 6'3", you know, 6'4", and I was pretty confident. And this guy over here, it was a shorter guy, stood on the left. And every night I'd preach, and these two Muslim bodyguards were standing there. And so I said to one of them, the big guy, after the meeting, I said, you know, you're pretty, um, I'm pretty glad you're here. You know, I would just kind of make friends, and I knew I had the angels, and I just wanted to build a relationship with the guy. I said, I'm pretty glad you're here, you know, in case anything happens. He said, what are you talking about? I'm not here for you. The owners of the auditorium assigned me so that there's ever a riot and they burn down the auditorium. I can protect the auditorium. Well, that kind of deflated my ego a little bit, you know. (laughs) One night, we were bringing 
30 buses to the meeting. They were bringing people. You have a women's bus, a men's bus, a women's bus, a men's bus. And the buses were coming in. As the buses came in to the meetings, somebody came on the, the, the women came on the women's bus. I noticed the women were really, really nervous. And so I would check every night. We had 30 buses. How'd bus 26 go tonight? What well, couldn't do well because it got stoned. You know, how did bus 17 go? Well, that bus broke down. And so we always had problems. So I said, one night when the women came off this women's bus, I said, how are things going? And they said, we're really afraid. I said, why are you afraid? Because four men wanted to get into, on the bus. The bus driver told them he wouldn't take them. And they said, they're going to come and burn our buses. I was preaching, a flatbed truck pulled up, 24 young guys get off with torches to burn our buses. I wasn't concerned because I was inside preaching and they were outside. But what happened was our Muslim guards went into action. They began shooting and about 12 of the guys got away, but they caught 12 of them. They brought them to the police station. That night after the meeting, I was in my room and a knock came on the door from the conference president. He said, Mark, we're in big time trouble. I said, what is it? He said, you know those young men that wanted to break up the meetings? I said, yeah. They have been captured. The police have them. And they've stripped them to the waist and they're just beating them. And they're just beating them. Because these young men are not Muslims. They come from an old village that used to be, has Christian names. They're not Christians. They don't go to any church. But they're not Muslims. They're non-Muslims. And they're really beating them. Bad. I said, look, go down to, go down to the police station and drop all charges against them. Because if we drop the charges, there's nothing the police can hold them for. We've got to get those kids out of there now. So the conference president went down. He said, look, we know these kids were going to burn our buses. We know they're up to no good, but we're dropping all the charges against them, every single one. We want them released. The police had no reason to hold them because there would be no court case, and so they let them go. The kids walked out. When they came out into the Karachi night, the conference president said, we want you to know we forgive you. And these kids said, how could you do that? We came to disrupt those meetings. We came to burn your buses. How could you do that? The reason we can forgive you is because Christ forgave us. We're not holding anything against you. The, the gang leader embraced the conference president. And he said, would Pastor Finley let me come back to the meetings? Come to the meetings. He hadn't come yet. He came. We studied the Bible with him. He's a deacon in our Seventh-day Adventist church today. Amen. The gang leader came to Jesus Christ. What kind of God do we serve? What kind? He's a mighty God. Is he going to work mightily for you? Yes. One last story. My wife and I just came from South Africa. God is doing something incredible. A year ago, I was in Vich University, one of the top 50 universities in the world, holding an evangelistic meeting. As I was holding that meeting, it was being satellited. One day, the queen of the Zulu tribe called. Now, the Zulus are one of the most powerful tribes in all of South Africa. 21 million people in the Zulu tribe. 21 million. The, the, the queen of the Zulu called and said, I'm so disappointed. Why are you disappointed? We have the Hope Channel, the Seventh-day Adventist Channel, in the palace. And we didn't see Pastor Finley on preaching on Monday night. Where was he? Because we're watching in the palace. The king is watching. The queens are watching. The, the, the princes are watching. Where's Pastor Finley? We said, we don't have meetings on Monday night. Oh, she said, that explains it. Now, let me tell you the queen's background. When she was a little girl, she lived in Swaziland. 
She was brought up in a royal family, a princess. The king chose her. Seventh-day Adventists used to visit that palace, and some Adventists gave her some health sweets. Maybe they weren't health sweets, but they gave her candies to suck on, you know? (laughs) She had such a good impression of these Adventists. They'd always smile and be so happy. Later on, when the king was having a political challenge with the chiefs and the king was getting sick, he said, she said, your majesty, the Adventists can help. They know how to pray. Let's invite an Adventist pastor to come and pray. They found an Adventist pastor. He came to the palace, prayed for the king. The king got well. The political problems were solved. God is a mighty God. Mighty God. And so... The king was so impressed, he said, let's let that Adventist pastor come and stay in the palace and study the Bible with us. This has happened. You're you're getting cutting-edge information. This has happened within the last year and a half, two years. Wait till you hear this story. The Adventist pastor came. The queen said to the king, I believe these truths. One day she was sitting in the palace and she looked so despondent. It was a Sabbath and the king came in and he said, Queen, why do you look so despondent? Why aren't you in church with your people today? She said, Your Majesty, I could go? And he said, Yes. The Queen now has been baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. We gave her as the baptismal gift, the Hope Channel. So now the whole palace is watching. (laughs) That was a year ago. Just, but now this is fresh, just a few weeks ago. My wife and I had an invitation to the palace. We flew to Durban, South Africa. We drove up into the mountains four hours. Now, the king has six wives. Every wife he has, he builds a new palace for. So he has six palaces. Now, I need to explain this to you a little bit about all this, six wives. I mean, one is enough. <laughs> I thank the Lord for the one I have. <laughs> what, how do we deal with that as a church? The head queen has been married to him for 32 years. She is the wife of one husband. She has one husband. He has six wives. (laughs) So what do you do? You say, Lord, you don't tell her after 32 years to leave him, right? So she is a faithful Queen Esther in the Bible. You remember that? So we have said to her, look, if, you had a, if we had a young girl that was an Adventist that was going to become a queen, we'd say, no, you know, I mean, you got, this guy's got enough wives now. You go find a different husband. You know? We prayed. And I'll tell you, this queen is powerful. She said, come to the palace. My wife and I drove four hours. We get up into the mountains, poor area. But here's this great palace. We came to the palace. And we learned they had a banquet in our honor at the palace. The king said to the queen, what would you like? What would you like? She said, I'd like to invite all of the Adventists in the little churches, peasants, goat herders, and, and, uh, and farmers. I'd like to invite them to the palace. So the Adventists came to the king's palace with the queen. They had a huge banquet. I mean, there was crystal on the tables and elephant tusks coming up in the center of every table and flowers and platters of fruit that the king gave. It was amazing. But here you had 400 Adventists. I preached on how Jesus Christ can change your life from within. I preached about how the only hope is Jesus. The leading press was there. Six major newspapers featured 
that story. Oh, here's my wife. You want to see the front page in the newspaper? Here it is. I didn't even know you had that, dear. Thank you. <laughs> this is the front page of one of the leading newspapers in South Africa. Here is the governor of the state. Here is the king. Now, the king is highly educated. He lectures at American universities. He's meet, he meets with the kings and queens of Saudi Arabia. He meets with the kings of Europe. Here we are, front page of the paper. It talks about Seventh-day Adventists. It talks about the meeting in the palace. The queen, the king just got another one queen. She's 24. The lead queen studied with that woman, and she now has become an Adventist. The prince is requested baptized to become an Adventist. The king, response of the 21 million Zulus, has said, I am giving you land to build an Adventist church for the royal family right outside of the palace, and we're going to build a health center there to help AIDS victims, a little center for handicrafts. God is a what kind of God? He brings down communism. He is a mighty God. He penetrates Islam. He is a mighty God. He penetrates Zulu area. He is a mighty God. You can go out as young people and be witnesses for Jesus Christ because we serve a what? Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.